Welcome to episode number 54 of the Road to Cinema podcast, featuring author F.X. Feeney of the new book Orson Welles, Power, Heart, and Soul, which is now available in bookstores and on Amazon.com. The book chronicles and analyzes the life and career of Orson Welles, the Oscar-winning co-screenwriter, director, and star of Citizen Kane. Author F.X. Feeney also shares with us his attempt to write and direct The Big Brass Ring, one of the screenplays that Orson Welles had planned to make before his death. We also analyze many of the points in Orson Welles' career, including the controversial analysis of the screenwriting credit for Citizen Kane, as well as the production of The Other Side of the Wind and what might be happening to the film at this point. And we also discuss author F.X. Feeney's friendship with Oscar-winning director Michael Cimino, who directed the 1978 Best Picture winner The Deer Hunter, as well as the infamous Heaven's Gate. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to read the Road to Cinema blog, and to watch our Road to Cinema YouTube series, please visit jogroadproductions.com. Don't forget, you still have a chance to win a free download of the final draft screenwriting software by following us on Twitter at Jog Road, following us on Instagram at Jog Road Productions, liking our Facebook page, Jog Road Productions, and subscribing to our YouTube channel, Jog Road Productions, as well as writing us a nice review on the iTunes podcast page under the Road to Cinema podcast. Once again, do all of the above, and you'll have a chance to win a free download of the Final Draft screenwriting software brought to you by Road to Cinema and our friends at Final Draft. And now we join author F.X. Feeney as he shares with us his initial inspiration for writing his new book, Orson Welles, Power, Heart, and Soul, which is now available to purchase on Amazon.com. Actually, the book had been in progress uh, for much longer than I realized. It was a kind of unconscious uh, process or more like an underground stream that had been sort of flowing in at the back of my mind because um, I had begun to take a very uh, serious practical interest in Wells during the days when I was working at Z Channel. Uh, Z Channel was a, 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 an amazing uh, pay TV service that was uh, running during the 1980s and uh, it was a leader in the realm of pay TV because the, the uh, supervising programmer Jerry Harvey saw that there was actually money to be made in using old classics and finding director's cuts and marketing director's cuts. That all comes from Z Channel. Uh, and so when I was working with Jerry as a consultant writing up the magazine and, and creating uh, on-air promos for the channel, I began to study Wells in earnest. I had always loved him. He'd always Wells, since my teenage years, had always been a figure of tremendous exotic appeal because here's a guy who, in his own teens, had been directing for the stage, doing all kinds of things. He became a star on radio while still in his late teens, and then in his early 20s, a major star on radio with The Martian Prank. And with Citizen Kane at age 25, he's writing, directing, starring, being the, you know, being the chief cook and bottle washer and protagonist of his own life. It's a great exemplary sort of rock star thing to do. And, uh, you know, I was born in 1953. So when I'm turning 18 in 1971, you know, Wells was being, as it were, seen as a god at that point. He, it was interesting that he hadn't made films in a while, 
but he he was worshipped by all young filmmakers at that point. And I, I came out to the Californias to the arts to study to become a filmmaker. And, and so Wells was always at the epicenter of everybody's imagination in terms of what you can do. Yeah. Charlie Chaplin uh, occupied the similar part of the Pantheon, and I think Buster Keaton, too, for guys, because it was like, okay, these men are doing it themselves. And, and you, we would study their careers uh, to see, you know... Yeah, and they're all actor, writer, directors. Exactly. Their hands and everything. Exactly. And I think when, when you're in your late teens and early 20s, of course, you're also trying to sort out your own destiny. And so one looks to people who've sorted out their own destinies, people who've, who've made it work. Yeah. You know, I think that's one reason why, for example, Tarantino became so big in the mid-90s, because he was not only a, a superb storyteller on film, but he was a public presence. He had a persona that was out there on talk shows, and he was in his own films at the, in the periphery. Yeah. It's very rare to see a director come out there and be a celebrity, in a sense. Exactly. And that's what yes. was. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And... As I began to look closely at the films, you know, watching them through Z Channel, seeing them again and again, then I began to appreciate, my God, you know, how great, how great it is to see a movie that you can see and re-see. So that certain directors like John Ford, I'd grown up watching John Ford films. I'm actually distantly related to Ford, though I didn't realize that growing up, but his, his, his films were on TV all the time through the 1960s. You know, just in the afternoons, you could run into them. So when somebody said, have you ever seen any John Ford films at CalArts? I thought, I, I don't know. I mean, what did he make? And then you look at all the lists, and it's like, okay, Stagecoach, uh, Drums Along the Mohawk. I mean, what haven't I seen? I mean, I'd seen practically all 90 of the films. You know, just because that was the way it was in, you know, in uh, TV back in the 60s. You know, things were just programmed as filler all the time. So you ended up seeing a lot. And so I had... I, I had John Ford down as a kind of storybook filmmaker, but then when I'm watching his work on Z Channel, I'm also beginning to see with the appreciation of a former film student who's done a little bit of acting and tried everything. I'm, oh my God, these are it's brilliant what he's doing here, what he manages to do in the space of a minute. And watching stuff be repeated on TV there and yeah. working with the tapes to edit commercials. You know, I would be studying, okay, how long does this scene take? Oh, wow, it's all, that's, he does all that in a minute? It, that was a real revelation. I hadn't, and and it, also studying Kurosawa and other directors that way. It, it was a great object lesson at Z Channel, how much a great director can pack into just ten ten seconds even. And so, with Wells, I was in the position of feeling like I'm reading great prose when I'm looking at how Touch of Evil is put together or Chimes at Midnight, a movie I really only got to know on Z Channel. So, so Wells, you know, was there as a kind of uh, now a, a real center of my heart at this point and Jerry Harvey died very suddenly and very tragically in the late 80s that is the whole subject of great hour. documentary by the way thank I, you I thank you yeah <laughs> Zan Cassavetes made a magnificent documentary about Jerry and Z called Z Channel a Magnificent Obsession which goes into that but in the you know it's worth noting that about a year before he died there was um, the Big Brass Ring was published by the St. Teresa Press the Big Breast Ring is the uh, one of the last screenplays that Orson Welles completed. And basically he uh reading that, I had been following its I'd been following the story of, of that film's efforts to be made in the early eighties, because every day in the Herald Examiner there would be something about it in Mitchell Fink's column, you know, 
will Wells get it made? You know, and and even people that he would be attaching to it, and yeah, so all the people he was approaching and all that stuff, because because Wells had a deal with uh, Arnon Milken, who later produced JFK, and then Henry Jaglum that helped uh, exactly. Henry Jaglum introduced him to to Milken, and Henry had made this great. um, He he basically made a great pitch to Wells himself, which was that you need to do something contemporary and political because if it evokes Citizen Kane, that's your hit single, you know, and and Wells took that to heart because Wells had written a magnificent script called The Dreamers, which was a period piece, and, you know, they're not going to let you near that until you do something. Isaac Dennison kind of... Yes, exactly. Isaac Dennison had done two stories, The Dreamers and Da Capo, which he combined brilliantly into one feature. And uh, and that's a that's a script that any director I wish someone would give it to Ridley Scott to try because it you could direct it you know like a conductor doing a symphony every note is in yeah. place the Big Brass Ring was more of a charcoal sketch and I remember reading it you know and and I bought two copies at Book Soup when they unpacked the boxes I, I bought two right away I thought okay I'm taking what year was it published by it was way? published 1987 ah. So it's a couple of years after Wells' death. I saw that they're, un, uh, they're actually unpacking it before my eyes. I, I grabbed two, drove straight to Z Channel where I was on my way anyway because, you know, I, I would usually, I, I only get there about m- midday and then work till midnight. So so it was easy for me to, you know, stop at Book Soup in the mornings. And I did. And so I gave one to Jerry and I said, maybe this is something for us to do. And he, you know, he, he was he was talking about it. We, we chit-chatted and then... Z Channel got busy. You know, we were in the last phase and a lot of things happened and he died. So after a couple of years, I was working on a couple of other projects. And, you know, when one fell through, I I, I started looking at Big Brass Ring again. And I, I read it in, one morning again for a second time and thought to myself, well, what can I do? You know, I mean, I this other project fell through, but I love this. And, and Big Brass Ring, as written by Wells, is set in Spain where I have relatives. And I was actually about to travel to Spain to a wedding. I thought, well, I, I, when I go to Spain, I'm going to look into, you know, these locations and see. Maybe you can shoot this on 16 millimeter. Maybe there's a, you know, in, in 1991 when I'm having these thoughts, that that was the way to do it, you know. Yeah. And I thought, and there were a couple of actors that I was friendly with uh, that uh, I thought would be right for it because Wells was looking for a married couple. He thought of John Cassavetes and Jenna Rollins to play the leads in that film. And I thought, well, Richard Richard Jordan and Blair Brown, they lived together out in Malibu. I I got to know them socially and liked them both tremendously, and they were both very approachable. I could maybe I get the rights to this, I could approach them. So I had a lot of um, very uh, practical thoughts. Now, a couple of friends of mine said, it's very arrogant of you to take on Orson Welles. And I thought, well, yeah, but if yeah. if you well, trust to even acquiring the rights to the script, yes, that yeah, acquiring so. the rights to the script is is a, is one thing, and that that became a little saga unto itself. But first, there's the how dare you factor, yeah. and I answered the how dare you factor. I thought with with an answer I could still give, which is, it's like how dare you direct Chekhov if we if we treat it as, you know, an unfinished script by or or an unmade. A, a, a just found script by Chekhov. Let's direct it. Let's see what it looks like. You know, it can't hurt. And so that was my attitude. It's like don't, don't be pretentious. Just figure out how to get it made. And of course, it was as I say a, a charcoal sketch. Um, it clearly Wells had left a few things in the air about the script, and I think that there was a strategic thought behind that because he was protecting his position inside the deal. If mm-hmm. if he could. Um, you know, 
be the guy to save the save the scene well yeah. that's the, yeah from reading it so much of the script is so vague that yes. you think what's the execution of this and i right. think that's what he was trying to hold out for exactly like, this will spark the curiosity of the reader exactly and then, you know i can step in and make it right so. right in a way um if you compare it to the dreamers you know he with the, the dreamers he's working with isaac Dennison's complete stories so he could create a symphonic vision of how they would be filmed whereas what he's doing in Big Brass Ring is he's kind of inventing an Isak Dennison story of his own. And when you read the script, it's the voice, the, the narration between dialogue bits, the scene descriptions, are told as if across a candlelit table by somebody speaking, saying, you know, Blake is now thinking of joining the criminal class. And it's like, that's not something you can film, and it's not rendered as voiceover, but it's, it's Wells basically telling you a story the way Isaac Dennison does on the page. So so it was there to be adapted, really. And you had to do adaptations. So I think, okay, that's legitimate, too. It's like taking a story by Wells and create something new. Well, what happens is when you get involved with something like the Big Brass Ring, I wrote to Oya Kadar, got a very cordial letter back from her. She said somebody else just got the rights about a week and a half before I received your letter. Mm -hmm. <sighs> you know, She wouldn't say who it was. I later found out from just probing around town that it was a young fellow named George Hickenlooper. So I said, ah, I've got a rival. Okay, so I looked him up at the Academy Library. I thought, oh, he's an interesting sounding guy. And he and I actually met at a party in 1993, and I drew him out about Big Brass Ring, and he was very forthcoming. But I didn't tell him my interest, because I thought it's like saying I'm in love with that girl you're engaged to. So, yeah. uh, you know, I, but I thought... Nevertheless, I, I, I drew him out about his other work, and we, we got to know each other slightly in that moment. And not long thereafter, I was able to um, actually set up a screening for one of George's early films so that we could view it for Showtime to see about it. You know, I, I figured, help him out, you know? I mean, if, yeah. if he things... He had done uh, Heart of Darkness or Hearts of Darkness? He had done Hearts of Darkness as a documentary, and he had just done his first dramatic feature in 1993, which was alternately called The Killing Box and The Grey Knight. It's a movie that he was embarrassed to have mentioned, you know, once in a while, because he did it on low budget for Roger Corman. But I thought, you know, I like the film. I thought he managed to make a vampire movie that doesn't use the word vampire, which, <laughs> and set it during the Civil War, which is even wilder. So, and he made it a, a curse that the African slaves uh, have yeah. cast upon the Confederacy. One of my so, favorites um, he did was the original Sling Blade short, yes, which yes. is amazing. It I mean, is. Uh, it's surprising he didn't direct the feature of that, but... I think that, um, yeah, what happened was that simply Billy Bob Thornton wanted to take charge of his own destiny. It's that simple, yeah. you know. And, you know, there's nothing George could say. George actually did have a deal to, to do it, but he and Billy Bob just, you know, okay, let's 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 just part over this because it's got to be, you know. Yeah, but you can see a great sense of George as a director. Absolutely. With the visuals he it, uses. It, when you compare the two films, it, it's it's not that one is superior, but the, the, the approaches are so different it's mm -hmm. it's really interesting you really see it actually dramatizes what what is george's voice and what is billy bob's yeah and you can really see what a director can imbue onto a piece of material exactly. the same material from two different directors exactly completely different visions that's right that's right and a very and you know billy bob's performance is is viewed very differently it, it's seen more as a figure in its own landscape rather than the inside sort of interior monologue that it becomes in its feature form by Billy Bob. So that, yeah, George is a very talented guy, or he certainly was, and, and at the time I'm going, okay, you know, and I could see that he was getting films made. So I had two thoughts about that. I thought, well, 
help him out with Showtime. Don't don't be a rival in that sense because you know who knows. He, 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 two, one of two things will happen if he succeeds. He'll get so busy that Big Brass Ring will simply drop by the wayside and be mine to snap up, or he'll get going and I'll you know I'll do my bit and I'll approach him at some point. And we'll, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. So so he and I were sort of like. Um, friendly rivals in a way he didn't know it for a long time but that, that was my pursuit i figured you know because what he told me at the party is he was going to set it in the united states he was making it more contemporary and i thought oh you know wells wrote such a lovely script set in spain in the 1984 election maybe i thought one way to complete the story to fulfill wells's original intentions for it because he finishing it in 1982 had actually set it two years ahead in 1984 mm. As part of that, so I thought, well, yeah, he he foresaw really Gary Hart. Actually, the Blake Pellerin character is so close to. He was one of the people he approached was Warren Beatty to play the part, and you can look at Blake as he's conceived on paper, and you go, yeah, this is Gary Hart in '84. So it's fascinating because Gary Hart, I think, was also caught on a boat with a woman, and that was photographed. So well, yeah, boat was sort of at a center of the big brass ring as well. Right, right, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, right. There's that photograph (laughs) of the girl on his. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) Yeah, I just that just came to me now. You're I, right. I mean. You're absolutely right. And you see, the other thing that that Wells was dealing with, which I go into this in my book, it's because I found when I got to Spain and I'm looking around at all the locations, every location in the script was there. So I had a beautiful feeling, to, like I was a Wells tourist. I'm I'm doing the Wells tour of Spain because I'm finding these obscure cafes that he mentions, and they're all there. I don't know that they're there anymore, but boy, they they sure were for the moment, and they had, were so atmospheric. I thought, oh get a camera and you just sit down with your friends and make this movie you know so I was very thrilled but I also learned that in the in the year after I came back from Spain it emerged that Iran Contra the whole business of um, trading arms to the Iranians to uh, get money on the side and all these sort of deals were set up in Madrid at the at the at the Ritz Hotel which is where all the espionage stuff goes on in Wells's own big brass ring So Wells, who was in touch with the Iranian government to try and free other side of the wind, knew very well, and it's even a line in the screenplay of Big Brass Ring that um, that Madrid is a great hub. You know, uh, it's a it's a place for developing assets for the CIA. And it was, of course, if you wanted to fly to Tehran, you would fly to Madrid because that was the hub that would get you from Madrid to Tehran. So, anyway, Wells had all of that sort of like under the surface of the iceberg in his own script, and it was exploding in the early '90s. So I thought, oh, make this a period piece set in 84 but this time just do it in a clairvoyant way so mm-hmm. i felt that way you could keep what wells wrote at like a fly in amber but you create the amber around it so that we have the magnifier of what we now know uh-huh. you know that was kind of my approach but um that ran out of gas after a couple of years because i uh, you know i would show the script around a bit to people and i get nice responses but i didn't have the rights there was a moment when i almost had the rights but still george was was persisting so there was a moment when i thought okay you know Let's. It's time to call George and show him what I've written because I had a very tight, interesting script, and I figured if if he likes this and we spark to each other, maybe maybe this is meant to be. So we did, yeah. and that's what happened. And when I saw what he had written, set in the United States and contemporary, I was very energized. I I was afraid I'd be offended, but you can't get offended on Wells' behalf after all this because I had already done a full-on treatment of his version, and I realized you know it's a non-starter commercially because. It's a period piece set in Spain 15 years ago, and uh, you know it, you need 
it's harder to sell that. And I thought, okay, but there's also the other aspect, which is that George is a young man and he's written a young man's script. And I would think, you know, Wells would applaud a young guy seizing the opportunity and going for it. So I thought, well, there's a combination we can do. And that's what we ended up doing. In honoring Wells' intentions, it became a very improvised kind of dance atop logs that are rolling down river. You've got well elements that Wells put into place. And then there are philosophies that Wells had, which is Wells always promoted the idea that a filmmaker should uh, work innocently the way Adam and Eve named the animals. So, uh, you know, there's a kind of innocent energy that Wells would have applauded in what George and I were doing, which is, okay, inspired amateurs, we're in love with this story, yeah. but how do we do it? How do we make it come to life? And really, the, the answer is through the characters. And when you're studying the characters, and I think if you study Wells' script and you study the film that resulted that we made with William Hurt and Nigel Hawthorne and Iran Jacob, well, what you see in common are the characters. That we were able to be true to. And I think that the other aspect was in order to bring George's um, American adaptation closer to Wells without sending everybody to Spain, there was a missing ingredient. Um, and it came from my deep reading of Wells in the act of adapting uh, Big Brass, which was that Wells had a brother who was 10 years his senior, who looked almost exactly like him, but had, was afflicted with schizophrenia. So mm -hmm. he was a disappointment to the parents. He was always in trouble. He ended up being institutionalized for a number of years. And then he would sort of show up in Wells's life, you know, just kind of like a flying Dutchman, yeah, a ghost. It was bizarre reading that in the book, how, we, you know, he showed up, he was in Beverly Hills at one point, yes. he was on the set of certain movies. Yes. He, would, he, like, he just sort of... He Well, he had been... He had been a drifter himself for a long time. So what happened in one instance, um, there were some bums. Now, there, there, there are two variants to the story. One is that, that it happened in the 30s when he's in New York directing a street scene. Mm -hmm. And the other is that it's it, when he's in San Francisco directing a street scene with Rita Hayworth, you know, for, uh, for Lady from Shanghai, where, you know, he's asking these uh, derelicts to, to take positions and then the crowd parts yeah. and he turns to either either Reader Hayworth or his first wife Virginia and says, Oh, this is my brother Richard and, you know, takes him to lunch. And he, he did he did support him, you know, he did he sent him a check every month for life. I mean he made sure that he was looked after, but but Richard Wells would sometimes turn up at Orson Welles fan clubs and introduce himself as Orson Welles to people. And so he was a a problematic kind of brother, you know. Yeah. But and and Peter Bogdanovich in the the conversations with Wells tries to bring him up and Wells says no let's we're not going to discuss him you know let, let's not even talk about that I just mm. and so boom, it's like a sealed door so I thought okay there's a live wire there's a third rail for Wells that he just wouldn't touch except that it's done sy symbolically in his work because in every Orson Welles film you have a very fraternal contest that is often life and death between males I mean, it's, you know, there's Kane and Jed Leland and Citizen Kane. There is, uh, you know, in Chimes at Midnight, it's Falstaff and Prince Hal. Those are the bookends of Wells's major yeah. film career. I mean, Othello, Iago, uh, Touch Even of Evil. Even Brooks Oderlake and Jack Hannaford in Other Side of the Lines. Exactly, yeah. exactly. It's, it is never absent from his work, and yet no one, it's never unmasked. So I thought, well, here's a way to, to, as it were, be free with Wells and yet be true to Wells at the same time. Give the character of Blake Pellerin, who had a, a long absent mistress in the uh, in the screenplay, 
the change that mistress make her a long lost brother what happens then then i felt and i believe it it comes true that it energizes the contemporary adaptation in a very wellsian way now all of this uh forms the backdrop to how i wrote this book because basically as i was forming all these uh ideas and fighting these particular battles i was becoming very educated about wells in a very particular way that no book i'd read had quite satisfied mm -hmm. and the hub of my recognition about this is how politically conscious wells was how politically active he was now joseph mcbride and and and, and james narrowmore have both uh written you know with attention and and um and real respect, and also Jonathan Rosenbaum, have all written with attention and respect to Wells's political life. But they touch on it. It's not necessarily the, the key. It's just simply a, a, an interest of his that they take seriously and honor. But I felt, no, this is really, this is absolutely serious, because you read all the biographies. I mean, he formed such a close friendship with uh, FDR that it's clear that Wells was not just... Um, getting to know the famous and powerful, he was actually developing the idea of a political career for himself. And, uh, and what if you look at his life, examining it as a political career that was planned for and then went derailed instead of a film career? You know, there's always the whatever happened to Orson Welles. Well, you know, he came to Hollywood and he blew it. And it's like, no, he didn't. Hollywood was not his main event. He was a New Yorker, successful in radio, who, you know, swooped through Hollywood and he grabbed all the goodies he could because he had a winning hand. You know, yeah. with the Martian prank, he was given a, a, a fantastic three-picture deal with RKO. Great. But he was also headed back to Washington. That's why he took the assignment that, you know, in retrospect became such a disaster where he went to South America to make a documentary about yeah, the carnival. Which unfortunately the... put Magnificent Ambersons into peril. Yes. So. Yes, he divided his energies, much like Custer dividing his troops at uh, Little Bighorn and Wham. He got, you know, he basically, uh, it was a fatal, a fatal series of steps. And you can't say that any of them were self-destructive. People have sometimes characterized Wells as self-destructive. And certainly he can appear that way from certain angles. But my sense is, no, he, he's... He's Apollo, I mean, he's, or he's more Prometheus. He's Prometheus stealing fire from the gods. He's, he's, he doesn't think he's going to screw up. He's actually trying to reach for the fire. He's reaching for it. Yeah. Now, that's hubris. There's a, whole, there's a whole set of tragic energies that can attach themselves to a guy who does that. But Wells was young enough and free enough and you know, on top of his game enough to think, no, that won't apply to me. And so there he goes. Well, major uh, theme that comes up in your book um, is the trust that Orson Welles sort of lost in certain people, the confidence that he had in certain people. Yes. And that seems to sort of carry on in his life and just keep getting worse. Yeah. Um, you know, whether it be John Houseman or the, even the people who took care of him as a child. Yeah. Um, I think I think trust was probably the great issue of his life you know betrayal is of course the great theme of his of his dramas i mean there's always a treachery going on and 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 sometimes people are are acting against their own interests you know and uh, you know but really that that whole sense of treachery is there and i think it was there from the beginning 
But what happens is that there were certain people that, that he could rely on completely. Um, you know, there's, um, there's, of course, his teacher, Skipper Hill, at, at the Todd School. There's also a man named Richard Wilson who was, I mean, just so reliable and kept the archives. And a lot of the, 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 the defense of Wells that scholars have been able to mount in recent years against, you know, um, the different, uh, you know, the different attackers. I mean, as various as uh, Pauline Kael and Charles Hyam, you know, the, the first biographies. Or even David Thompson, who writes a very empathetic book on one hand, but he's projecting a lot of his own stuff on Wells. You know, he's writing in a, effect, uh, in a sense of a nonfiction novel in Rosebud. So these interpretations of Wells um, are answered by the, the archive that Richard Wilson kept, which shows, no, there's, there's a series of, of sort of frog in a pot clicks of the, where the heat turns up, but Wells is not turning the heat up. It's just circumstance changes. But in any event, um, Wells found, I mean, there are people that he trusted in a fraternal way, such as Hausman. So what one wishes, you know, is that, oh God, if only, you know, they could have stayed together for several films. Yeah. You know, because if Hausman had been still on, on board to protect Ambersons, it would have been protected. You know, it just, it's, it would have been. He, it's just bizarre how there was such a rift there that Hausman kept perpetuating that Wells hadn't written the screenplay for Citizen Kane for many years. And, I know, I, mean, I know. I don't know where that hatred and... Uh, I think it was hard for Hausman to look at the spectacle of Wells in difficulty. Uh, and so by the late 60s, you know, he's just being more dismissive. That it's Orson's fault that he's in this way. You know, and I think, so that lit up his remarks to Pauline Kael over lunch. Although, see, Pauline Kael didn't take any notes of her lunches with Hausman. So, you know, you get, okay, how much of this is really from Hausman and how much of this is her her reweaving? You know, because when, when her biographer uh, um, went and looked, you know, he could find no evidence that... Uh, that she'd taken any notes of her conversations yeah, with anybody. This is from uh, the essay, I believe it was Raising Cain. Yeah, uh, yes. Which Let me be, yeah, because, that uh, yeah. Orson Welles hadn't written Citizen Kane. It was all Herman Mankiewicz. And... Right, right. Now, I, I had actually, by the way, in my early talk about the iconic Wells that teenagers worshipped, he wrote, directed, starred in. Let me be clear. You know, Herman Mankiewicz, you know, wrote the first draft that became Citizen Kane. And he actually wrote two drafts, from what I understand. But that was, you know, the second was under Wells's heavy direction, and then Wells took it from there. And the Writers Guild, which definitely looked at all these things, you know, saw that, okay, Wells would have, you know, passed muster. Yeah. You know, you need to have, a director needs to be responsible for at least 50% of the script. Uh and it was clear that by the end, Wells was responsible for about 70%, you know, in rewriting Mankiewicz. Mankiewicz had done a very, um, very thorough and, and lively job of creating, as I put it in my book, a 200-page novel in screenplay form called American, you know, which basically rehashed a lot of the details of Hearst's life. And Wells, very prudently, and with Hausman, you know, at his side, thought, no, let's base it on a couple of other guys. So you had, you know, Robert Insull and a guy named McCormick, all these sort of big dinosaur robber barons of the newspaper yeah. world. And they, they wove all their stories in. And, uh, and you know, it was also when, when Hausman was co collaborating with, with, uh, with Mankiewicz out in the desert on the first draft, he also said, steer clear, if we can, of Hearst by basing it on Mr. Wells. 
You know, I mean, they they both they were calling him the dog faced wonder boy. So they they were both you know they 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 both sort of had enough of him in a way, and they were sending him up in that script. And Wells was taking that he was seeing that they were you know using aspects of his life story, and uh, and he went with it full full throttle. So the authorship of the screenplay um, is properly you know attributed to Mankiewicz first, Wells second. Yeah. You know, but it was a project that Wells cooked up that he invited Mankiewicz to to yeah. undertake. He was a writer for hire. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and you know, it's what Pauline Kael could not see in her essay that she published, Raising Cain, in 1971, was how intricate and how much of a tennis match collaboration in any movie is. And it's a it's a tennis match between as many as 10 players. There's got to be one winner, one one senior partner, one person who calls the shots at the end of the day, and that was Wells. Yeah. You know. And so that's to to try and undermine him by suggesting it, that someone else wrote it in its entirety is just wrong, you know. Um and so what we have, you know, I don't know, uh the question about trust you know, there, there's Hausman basically, you know, putting poison darts out about Wells in the late 60s. And unfortunately, it was at a, it was at a sensitive moment for Wells because at that moment in Hollywood, you know, one could get, you know, Easy Rider was made for 300000 and, you know, made $60 million at the box office. That's bigger than Star Wars was. I mean, Star Wars may be bigger now in dollar terms. But, but in if, profit margin. In profit time, margin, yeah. sure. You're thinking of something that's made 180 times its original budget. And you look back and you think, oh, if only there was a way to, to mix Wells in there. You know, now, Other Side of the Wind was clearly an effort to do that. Yeah. And, you know, one can only mourn that so much went wrong inside that. And I think that there must be, you know, the issue of trust and who do you trust? You know, Wells was enough of a, a wounded animal that there were very few people he could trust, and then and he ended up trusting the wrong people, that guy, that Iranian middleman or Spanish. And sometimes the people that he should have been trusting, he turned on them, yes. unfortunately. Yeah. So. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I know, I know. And, and really, in a way, you see, the turning on the people you trust, sometimes you act out emotionally on the people who, who are there for you. You know, in any family squabble, it's who do you take it out on? The one who's really listening. <laughs> so, so it's like, uh, you know, you can see, you know, all kinds of human error uh, in in Wells's conduct of his own career. That doesn't dis displace him as a genius or an artist, because he's the, the great noble thing about Wells is that to his dying day, he was working on his next project and giving it his all. You know, whatever. Whatever um, whatever uh, deficits there were in his skill set, and I think that really, you know, there are limits even to great talent. His great talent was for <clears throat> envisioning a story and telling it well. Managing the practical affairs of satisfying the moguls, of keeping keeping the fires burning at the you know at the at the base camp, so to speak. Yeah talents at which, for example, Hausman excelled, and also Richard Wilson and other people that Wells got to, had attracted into his orbit. When, when he had a protector, when he had somebody at his flanks who could handle things, nobody could touch Wells. 
but there was that one skill set that he just could not master. And and I think, you know, that may be the byproduct of his childhood too, where in a sense everything is so done for him, everything is so provided for him that he didn't learn there were certain skill sets he couldn't develop about providing for himself. And yeah. so there's an anger that comes with that and a uh, you know, just a rage and it it'll it'll come out at the you know, when you're skinned, you know. Yeah, it seems like he almost preferred chaos in a way, just reading about the production of The Other Side of the Wind. I mean, it was just so, I mean, he would shoot parts of scenes and... Yeah, and all I would say that, not that he preferred chaos. I think he trusted chaos as a creative resource. He liked to say that a director presides over accidents. That's, and I think how true, how much he demonstrates that in Other Side of the Wind. Yeah. He's trying to create the atmosphere of accident. Oh, go, do, yeah, and, and just... You know, and also because of his, what he discovered at the editing table early on, which is that, you know, people are reacting to the next thing they see, and you can cut from one thing to the next, and people, you know, if it's a smooth flow, it creates serenity, and if it's a, if it's conflicting, it creates a different feeling, which is still useful. That it's yeah. all useful, and the idea that it's all useful is a really beautiful positive energy that he has that I think inspires a lot of filmmakers. I think I think it was an inspiration to Kubrick because um, Kubrick, I, on several levels, uh, I think Kubrick was directly inspired by Wells. One is this trusting, trusting the accident because something that Kubrick told James B. Harris is that, you know, when Harris was about to direct, he said, don't let the studio tell you that you have to match all the over-the-shoulder shots. Yeah. You know, you can go close up. You can you can cut from one to the next. It doesn't matter. You just it, whatever looks good and is interesting. And I believe that has to be a discovery that Kubrick. He doesn't attribute it, but I think Kubrick made that discovery watching the films of Orson Welles because Welles was the first to kind of break. He wasn't that. very traditional at shooting coverage in the normal ways that we're used to. Exactly. And uh, a lot of the things like crossing the line or oh, you know, shooting over shoulders. And exactly. He, um, you know, it seems like he was cutting a lot in the camera in a sense where he was sort of he knew how he wanted the scenes to cut and that's how he was directing the movie on a exactly basis. he pre-visualized in such a way he had a he had an idea in his head oh this will go with that very well and i could get that later he get and how to move in on it and when you see him it's a really interesting uh documentary one man band that is on the criterion um disc of uh f for fake you get to see him directing oyakodar uh, in what in the extant footage of the dreamers, and what's interesting is that he doesn't say cut; he just keeps the camera rolling, and it's she just has to reset. You know, he doesn't even command that; yeah. just, she just knows, and she's doing the same line. She's like, oh, louder! No, uh, no, you're angry now. No, you, you, you need and and she's uh, and she just attacks the the same line of dialogue several different ways, and it's wonderful because you see, you know, she's a good actress; she's nailing a different feeling each time, but her energy is up. You know, the, yeah. when you say cut, well, okay, bing, everybody's checking their messages, they all dissipate. They yeah. You're turning it. off equipment, everything is... Everything's, everybody's taking, you know, yeah. every, even even for a few seconds, man, everybody's, uh, you know, and it's like, how do you get the energy up? Wells knew, just roll through, just roll yeah. through. So with that in mind, you know, he knew that, that uh, he could as much discover the film on the editing table because there's the, the movie you think you're going to shoot there's the movie that unfolds before your eyes and then there's the movie you can salvage from all the madness that you caught on the set and when you have 
a full support system, as, for example, he had on Touch of Evil, well, then the magic is happening 24-7. I mean, I think part of the power of that movie is, is that he had universal support. It was simply that they'd kind of done the favor of letting him alone. Yeah. I think he did himself the favor of shooting a miraculous 12-page scene on the first day so that they could strike the set two days ahead of schedule. Yeah. He pulled that off. <laughs> That's the interrogation scene that comes in the middle of the film. And you don't realize that it's all one shot because he deliberately cuts into it with interstitial scenes set at a telephone outside and so forth. Uh, he's not doing a long 12-minute shot to show off. He's simply doing it to accomplish as much as he can and to keep the energy intense between the actors. And wouldn't you know, he also managed to be three days ahead of schedule by the end of the day. Yeah, that's what he seemed to uh, also be doing with The Other Side of the Wind. I mean, even yes. uh, there's a scene you described in the book about uh, Henry Jaglin and Paul Mazursky were pitted against each other, and he knew that they had this personal problem. Yeah. And he just put them in front of the camera, and they played out something that was fictitious, yet there was a reality. Also different energies, it. yes. Yeah. Yes. You get it. You, you see that, and you see, you know, um, I mean, because there's, Mazursky is... Uh, without meaning to, defending the studio line and Henry Jaglin's talking the Wildcatter line. You know, I mean, they both went their separate ways, you know, in, the, in this, but both are independent-minded. But, you know. Yeah. And then you got Dennis Hopper, you know, with his cowboy hat talking about the magician. The, yeah, some of that material was on YouTube a few years ago. Yes. And uh, I think no one knows who put it up there. That's <clears throat> interesting. I wonder, you know, that's an interesting question. I suspect Gary Graver put it up. Uh, you know, because when did he passed away. He passed away. Uh, I believe it was in two thousand seven. Uh, I, I I need to double check that, but um, it was uh, yeah. He because he came to speak to my class in two thousand six, and he died. He, uh, the last time I saw him was at the end of two thousand six. Yeah, you talked about that in your book. Yeah, he came to your class at USC. Yeah, yeah, and he he died so suddenly. Uh, it was in early two thousand seven, if I'm not mistaken. So, mm. it would. I don't know when that was mounted on YouTube. YouTube was new in, in 2006, but it was up. And yeah. and it would have been very much like Gary to put footage out there because uh, he did have access to it. And He had a rough cut. Uh, he didn't have the actual Right, he didn't have footage, the negative. But he had a rough cut that Orson had put together at one point. Is that correct? It's correct. He had, yeah. uh, well, he had, uh, Orson had cut together about 45 minutes of fine cut. There's 45 minutes of extant fine cut, roughly, maybe 47. Joe, Joe McBride knows the exact number, but it's, it's approximately 45 minutes of, of uh, fine cut footage. I mean, fine cut, you know exactly what Wells meant for each scene. Uh, then there's like 10 hours of footage all in, and there's a lot of, uh, a lot of very rough cut footage that I saw in 1998, uh, about an hour and a half of it to tack on to the uh, 45 minutes. And this is Gary had invited you to see it. Yeah, Gary invited me to see it, and he invited a Sony executive. This was while, um, you know, the, the Touch of Evil was the per capita largest hit uh, in, in American theaters that weekend, or two weekends in a row. It had made more money than any other film. And, you know, per theater, it was like, it was selling out. Yeah. And so the moment was perfect to sell a new a new film by Orson Welles. But unfortunately, you know, there was so much footage that Gary showed the guy. I'll never forget the guy. He was like, with this smile, you know, just like, oh, it's so original, so fascinating. I, you know, it, it, we'll talk, we'll talk. And he disappeared, you know. 
never to hear That's from funny. him again. You now, would think he would have just showed him sort of like the fine cut footage and then just kind of left it at that, but he wanted to really he was he was yeah, was, yeah, he he yeah. thought he thought that the guy would be as excited by it. And so Oya who uh, she had a, a meeting set. She was in town too. I met her the same same couple of days. And she said, "Oh Gary, you know Orson said never be afraid of scissors." And so <laughs> she cut it back to uh basically the, the, the 45 minutes of fine cut it's, that she interspersed very cleverly with, you know, very choice outtakes of the of the rough stuff. Yeah. So it, was, it became, I think, a, a, an hour-long presentation, roughly, by then. Yeah. I mean, the, but the actual, uh, you know, footage, the original print, was still in France, so. Uh, yes, the original negative. So this was sort of a copy, what was used in the rough cut was sort of like a, a copy of that footage in a way well it was yeah or, it was it, it, i guess it was the uh interpositive that had been made ah, from the negative and yeah. it wells it's simply fine cut at his leisure but you know his negative is sitting in a the french pristine vault. negative pristine <laughs> negative and gary at that point you know he gary had introduced the footage very well and you know to the you know and everybody was enthusiastic i think even the sony executive had enthusiasm but he had no way to he had no butterfingered grasp on what he could sell to his own executives you know how yeah. do we how do we make this so i think oh yeah i think the next day showed it to probably showtime because they went for it now they also had a, a wonderful executive there named matthew duda who was uh, who i got to know years before we did big brass and he was one of the people who bought big brass in fact uh, big brass ring had its debut on showtime you know uh, because matthew duda and he he was a a, a big uh a big supporter of other side of the wind and and oh yeah showed him and a the select group of others that footage, her tight footage, and of course that sold the de closed the sale. Yeah. But you know, then it just it became you know always a battle with that damn other side of the wind, and it's tragic because it's such, you know, in its pristine form. I mean, if if you find a form for it, and I think it's there, you know, it it it, it would just be wonderful to have. Yeah. Um, an editor friend of mine said it won't be the same. It won't be a new Orson Welles film. I thought well. The Last Tycoon technically is not a new novel by F. Scott Fitzgerald, but his friend Edmund Wilson did a magnificent job of sorting through the manuscripts and creating... Uh, yeah, and an Peter Bogdanovich yeah. says that he has the notes that could help yes. put it together. Yes, he has the notes and he has, way, the, so. he has the notes and he has the movie sense. And, and, yeah. and I think, you know, Joe McBride also has good... You know, it's... I know that there's a whole... Um, uh, Oya Kadar has become a lightning rod of controversy on this, and I don't know. Her, I know her only well enough to be positive about her. So I, yeah. I you know, I've only had good experiences with her. But my sense, uh, if I look at why she's cautious, is because she made a very bad deal about Don Quixote in the early '90s, and I think she's always regretted that. And so, but you would think uh, at this point, because you have uh, Felipeon Rimshaw, who's Organized yeah. this crowdfunding campaign and raised all this money from people who are, yeah. you know, just giving donations. That she would be more accommodating and think, hey, you know, they have the best of interests. And, right. It may be that she wanted. Yeah. Or, they, well, yeah. money. You know, that's the the money is 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 real. After a point, and you've you've been shepherding this all along, so your your sense of your value escalates. Uh, you know, what are you gonna do? Um, I'm hopeful that they'll just simply navigate these rocks because they're fundamentally navigable. It's not. It's. It should. Right now, the ducks are in a row. Everybody wants to see this movie. Yeah, and, and everybody's cooperating for the most yeah, part. Yeah, yeah, I think. Her, so. Yeah, and I think this is where Carp's book is particularly vital because it is made it a holy grail 
that's actually reachable. Yeah. You know, and since, and let's get at it. Let's 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 have a look for at this thing. You know, it's Wells's fine material is so good that it 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 completes the argument for what he what his intentions were, and all anybody has to do after that, I think, and Peter Bogdanovich knows this. Howard Hawks rule better than anybody. You know, a good movie is six good scenes and no bad ones. You know, so so how do you you know? And so we've already got the six good scenes. You know, how do we how do we make it so that there are no bad ones? Yeah. You know, just find the find the good scenes and the rest of the footage and and let them form the arc. You know, I mean, there's a there may be a, an aesthetic that you can honor in Wells where you're you know going for the most alive stuff and, and nobody can tell where the forgery exists. Because really, the thing about Wells' raw footage that struck me uh, was that, you know, he's like a watercolor artist who's so full of energy that every every damn brushstroke is interesting. Even if it squiggles off into nothing, it's kind of like, whoa, you're riding electrical current. Yeah. And so, you know, you need to edit that current so that it, it has impact. Uh, but nonetheless, it really looking at the raw footage really exposed a, an aspect of Wells's native gift that, that I've never been able to forget, which is just... I mean, yeah, from reading about it, it seems yeah. like he was trying to do something very innovative with the cutting of the film and yes. to give it a, a different uh, perspective. And Yes, yes. He's he, was, since, uh, yeah. he was satirizing uh, sort of these artsy films like Antonioni at the time and yeah. you know playing into that. So um, Yes, he was satirizing them, but I think... You know, and, and Joe McBride is very adamant that he was satirizing these films, uh, whereas Oya was was you know wanting to maintain the poetry of them, and I think actually the tension between them is, it, it, I mean, between those two viewpoints, not necessarily between Oya and Joseph, but yeah. the idea that okay, is this satire or is this really poetry? I think I think there's an ambiguity you can honor there. It, you know, it's a wonderful novel by uh, Vladimir Nabokov called uh, *Pale Fire*, where you have a, a a poem, a very beautiful poem in the manner of Robert Frost, which is being commented on by a madman scholar. So, okay, is this poem a spoof, or is it a real poem? I always respond to the poem as a real poem, but it's it's a, a minor portion of the of the main body of the novel. So, I think in a way, I would use that as my example if I if if I'm cutting that picture. I figure, okay. Let the poetry be poetry. Let the satire come in because it's got bite. You know, the, the, yeah. you, you can, there's a, a tightrope you can walk where it, it, it serves both purposes. Because I think, to a certain degree, Wells was so in love with making movies that even though he deplored um, the, the length Antonioni would hold a shot and things like that, he nevertheless, I think his own love of movie making would have informed the way he cut those scenes so that they would be playful above all playful yeah. uh, rather than simply satirical so my hope for the cut that they prepare out of this is that those sequences have all the poetry and play that they need to just sort of so that you can see just see the potential there and also see the lunacy you know yeah you know yeah, it seems like uh you know once they settle this with Oya and to prepare editing that eventually the next fight will be well which cut do we use you know they'll probably come up with all these different versions of the film and well you know there's the beauty be of dvd there, so. yeah. yeah well i think that what happens is that when people have signed off there will be an extant release cut mm -hmm. and then what you can do i mean 
with all that 10 hours of footage, my God, the DVD extras uh, will be worth owning the disc unto itself. You know, <laughs> I mean, make a deal with Criterion, and it's just, yeah. you know, and I think that in this age of, you know, the, the various capacities, I had the thought that why not release it as a as a as a kit you know that that like you know you, that you could for a good amount of money you know like what you'd pay for a Toshin book you know one of those fat ones you know the yeah the Kubrick archive for 140 bucks your christmas gift to the filmmaker in your life is the other side of the wind the footage and the idea is that you you can make a film out of this you know yeah. you can't make money off it and then you have people do their versions, you know, I mean, and just invite people to, and, and so what happens is you got, you know, just let the world participate, you know, and there's an extant cut that shows, you know, that's like a skeleton key, you know, yeah. to, and, and <laughs> just invite people in because, I mean, Wells was such a, an inspiring force that maybe that's the, the ultimate destiny of Other Side of the Wind, that all that magnificent footage will become you know, fodder, and, and I think the same thing you can do with the footage from It's All True. Put it there so that other filmmakers can play with it and, yeah. and work with it. It was interesting uh, at the Chapman University conference that uh, they participated in recently, uh, Joseph McBride mentioned that he may have found a lead on the Magnificent Ambersons footage. Yes. I don't know yes. if he's talked to you at all about that. but uh, He's talked to me a little about it, and I know, you know, he's following on a suggestion by another scholar, Bill Crone, who had unearthed this, the idea that, I mean... A, an intact print of Magnificent Ambersons was sent to South America while Wells was down there. Mm. He was that the version that was previewed in Pasadena. Yeah, it had all the footage yeah. in it, and it had, it had everything. So he had that copy down there, and it was in the lab down there. And then RKO ordered the lab to destroy it, and a telegram came back. You know, Ambersons destroyed. Da da. But the thing is, that guy who ran that lab. Who, uh, he was known to just never destroy anything. He was always keeping stuff. So there are accounts from film students in Brazil of having seen the version of, of, of Ambersons in the early 60s. Mm. So it's like, well, where is it, you know? And so that's, I think, you know, it was, I mean, seeing, yeah, oh, they we had all that footage from Ambersons. We were using it as sound film. It's like, oh, my God, you were using it as sound. He's like, ah. You know, it, it, it so... The footage may exist somewhere, you know. Also, bear in mind that very recently, an intact, I mean, it was a bad copy, but an intact version of Fritz Lang's Metropolis, I mean, full, all the footage emerged in Buenos Aires. You know, someone had made a 16-millimeter dupe of what had been, you know, the original 35-millimeter nitrate footage of the intact version. Yeah. They just as a protection they did it, and it's like a a poor copy, but boy, it allows you to see everything that that, that Fritz Lang meant. Mm -hmm. So, it could be that there's you know there's a way to track down where this footage is. So that's Joe's next big archaeological dig. Yeah, and as, and he's such a thorough guy. That um, aspect of scholarship is why I, I I particularly trust McBride. I find him to be you know relentless in his pursuit of of whatever the truth is under the truth. You know, he believes that there is a truth to be known. You just have to be steady with it. And so I, I believe that he's a valuable voice for Wells in particular because he cuts through so much of the BS that has gathered up around Wells. Yeah, and he was also an actor in The Other Side of the That's Wind. Exactly so. <laughs> exactly so. He's a front, he has a, a front front row seat at the 50-yard line for all that stuff. So, so you, you know, it's... Um, I think the beauty of Wells's life 
is that he attracted so many people that are still dedicated to him years after his death. Because I think, as with any great talent, I think this happened with Stanley Kubrick. <clears throat> I think you can observe it in the life of Pablo Picasso. All the people that are just attracted to the, you know, the sense of a talent being fulfilled. Because there's nothing more beautiful. Because it, it, it fulfills everybody's talent. You know, you, you know, Picasso's paintings aren't just great because he painted them. They're great because they make us see better than we saw when we, before we looked at them. You know, you come away looking at the world in a different way. And you're thrilled to have your whole viewpoint be broken up and, and da be dazzled. And so, you know, to, to get to know the, the, the big minotaur making this stuff is, you know, people are naturally attracted to such a person and they're very loyal because they know that that person is, however, you know, much of a bastard Picasso could be to everybody in his personal life, there was something fundamentally unselfish about him when he's in relation to a canvas. And it's that kind of mad, divine unselfishness that, which is what attracts people. Now, I think in Wells's case, he had that unselfishness also translated into a kind of personal warmth and generosity, which you can see in any number of stills of him working with actors on a set. He, he knew how to make actors comfortable. He just had a gift of getting everybody to laugh. I mean, there's a lot of still photos of, say, Anthony Perkins just, just splitting his sides laughing on the set of Kafka's of, of the trial, you know. And although Kafka was known to sort of crack up while he was, you know, with giggles when he's reading his own stuff because he found it funny, you know, generally we don't find Kafka funny, but I think Wells was able to get to something under it so that one could feel the playfulness, yeah. you know. Someone who came up a lot in your book is uh, Michael Cimino, who actually helps yes. you write. Uh, he yes. gave you some notes in the Big Brass. He did. Writing it. Oh. So I'm curious how you developed a friendship with him, and you know, because there's so much speculation about Cimino as a person and oh, yeah. what has happened to him over the years. Oh, yeah. I, you know, Cimino is a really remarkable man. He, I met him through Jerry Harvey at the Z Channel. Uh, I had written about uh, Year of the Dragon, and it was a review that, it was a positive review, one of the few that the movie got. Uh, when it came out, which is amazing to think. Now I of. think people are looking back on it more favorably. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. I think it's interesting what happens. You know, a movie comes out, it gets condemned, and then there's like a wave of Hong Kong movies, and you know, uh, John Woo, and all these films come along, and then you look at Year of the Dragon, you're like, oh, this was like a forerunner to all of that yeah. that craze, you know, and and it's also really great in and of itself. Well, in any event, I I tapped into it, and and. Chimino had responded, and, and so he, he wanted to meet me through Jerry, and we met, and it was really great. We were cautious with each other uh, for the first couple of years because, you know, I mean, it's I think Chimino was the one that made the comparisons. It's like Woody Strode and, and Kirk Douglas and Spartacus. You don't want to get, you might have to meet me in the ring and kill me at some point. So, you know, he, he, you know we, we, we sort of had a mutual respect, and, and, you know, Jerry would sometimes bring us together. At, you know, we'd be seated at a common table, but I didn't really get to know Michael until after Jerry's death. And then we were both missing a very dear friend to both of us, and we ended up becoming great friends ourselves. And I was no longer writing movie reviews. From about 1988 on until 92, I was working as a screenwriter. And so I didn't, you know, I, I took up reviewing again in the, in the mid-90s. But um, in that four-year period, you know, I was meeting with Chimino almost every day. He was working on a number of projects. He always, you know, Chimino, like Wells, is somebody who always has something going on. Yeah. He has, uh, you know, I would visit him, you know, he, he has a wonderful house, uh, you know, on, on the top of Mulholland and, 
you know, he tends to work in his kitchen, which I, he has a really nicely appointed kitchen and has like his great sort of brewer chairs and he's got stacks of scripts. I mean, his These own, are all that he wrote. That he wrote, that he's working on. He'll, and, and Even to this day, he's still... Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen him in, a, in the last uh, few months or so, but, but I know that he's, he's constantly at work on stuff. And certainly in the 90s, he was just... You know, he had uh, you know finished scripts that he'd have typed up. He had a he had a typist, so he'd write everything in longhand. So you'd have all these, you know, different you know yellow Manila fold Manila pads that that uh, legal pads basically that'd be in folders. You know, just stacked up to go out on various projects. Because he, if he wasn't writing a new one, he'd be looking at an old one. How can I make this better? How can I make a deal out of this? Wow. So. You know, he's a guy who's a, just a demon uh, of work at all times. And I think that's particularly, you know, he he's somebody who he would get very wary sometimes when I'd be talking about Wells because he didn't he didn't want to visit the specter of of Wells's, you know, being, you know, in the in that kind of twilight career, you know, not twilight in the sense of of it's over, but you know, just somehow not being able to get get work in Hollywood, you know, because Michael certainly has lived that one, you know. I think, you know, lightning hit him with Heaven's Gate. And, and this is right before he won all the Academy Awards for the Deer Hunter. And I know. He'd lauded around town. I know. He'd gone from he'd gone from best picture and best director to being suddenly, you know, the scapegoat. For, really, if you look at Heaven's Gate and what happened to it, it... it, it it was a movie that got scapegoated for the quote-unquote excesses of the 1970s. You know, you look at Apocalypse Now, you look at Fitzcarraldo, there's a lot of juggernaut pictures, a lot of picker, pictures where, yeah. you know, they, they jump the, the tracks of their original budget and they expand. Part of this is because uh, silver and silver nitrate went up in value in the late 70s, so suddenly film film stock. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, it's a it's wow. a it's a one of those odd things that doesn't get remarked on, but that that was expanding budgets, right? And you also have a factor which nobody's really written about, to my knowledge, but I, I I've noticed because defending Heaven's Gate, I, I noticed okay, Doctor Doolittle at 20th Century Fox. You got Waterworld and Universal right before Universal sells to the Japanese. Mm -hmm. You got. Heaven's Gate at UA, which sold out. It didn't destroy UA. UA simply sold a, a kind of a profit to its stockholders, to other companies. Part became part of MGM. So, all right, you say, is it possible that certain juggernauts prefigure the sale of a studio, not in a conspiratorial sense, but maybe it's a kind of uh, Tembler under the tsunami sense of. You know, nobody's minding the store because we're, you know, we're basically concentrating on other things while yeah. we're getting ready for the sale. Or, you know, it's allowed to become a juggernaut because, it, you know, someone can, quote unquote, come to our rescue. And, that, you know, it's like I, I don't know the economics of these things well enough to be able to there speak about book, them knowledgeably. Um, Final Cut. I don't know if Stephen Bach Stephen Bach was an yes. executive there at the time. But, right. Uh, right. Yeah, it and, seemed very, like, accusatory at Michael in terms of. Yeah, he was very frustrated with Michael personally, and and so his his there's a personality conflict between him and Chimino, which I can see is very real. And he, you know, I can see, I see Michael in his portrait of Michael. You know, I mean, Michael is he's a um, I, I want to use the word secretive in a in a in a strategic sense. He he can be he plays his cards very close to the vest, and he he's a he's he's a master at pushing you back so you don't get too close because he's he needs to protect his options 
Yeah. You know, this is a this is a thing with certain big guys. I know that like, uh, you know, there was uh, David Lean, for example. I mean, there was. I remember a story about him that that he why he got rid of Nicholas Rogue on on uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Rogue was too quick with the setups. I think this is in the uh, uh, it's in the. Uh, uh, David Lean biography uh, by Kevin Brown. That's something I didn't even realize. Nicholas Rowe was going to be the DP of. Lawrence he's one. He, he's one of the credited DPs. Uh, uh, he's one of the camera operators. But he had a problem, and it was it was a it was something that Lean even said. You know, I can't hate you for this, Nick, but you you're too quick. He he would, he would have too many setups, and and Lean would want time to think. He he would need to be sure, and if if the setups already, it's like. I have to shoot it now, and it's like you know there was a a funny a funny kind of conflict that way. So, yeah. so what happens is that a great director is often in the position of protecting his options. That's why I feel like Wells was doing the Big Brass Ring script as a as a charcoal sketch because he was protecting his options for the set. Yeah, and it's an interesting strategy that. So, so I think you know when I read, I I, I did read Final Cut, and you know I mean I read it early on, and I I could see you know it's. There, it's it's a kind of like a biography of Orson Welles by John Hausman. There's a disappointed love there on the part of Bach. I think, mm. you know, Bach w fell under Michael's spell. Michael, Michael is a very seductive talker. He will, you know, he makes the magic over a candlelit table. He can make a film in your head that you absolutely must see. You'll pay whatever it takes. Oh, I have the money to do that. Let's do that. So you get in on involved on that level and really what happened is kind of like Bach fell out of love with Chimino because of the difficulties. You know, it's like you wake up after the honeymoon and you're actually in this process of making this picture together. Yeah. And Chimino is is not misbehaving because he's being I mean the thing that Bach keeps acknowledging gosh this was the the most organized editing room I'd ever been in you know it's not like chaos everywhere you every piece of footage you could find it to the to the frame everything is documented I mean it's like the, the Alexandria library in there you know exactly yeah. how to find everything and and Chimino's super organized and and because that's the key to the guy he's never disorganized and so but nevertheless I think you know he, he he has a natural dislike of people breathing down his neck and so you know i don't think bach knew how to handle him and bach as much as confesses this you know so uh, you know i i think it's in a weird way a kind of honorable performance but at the same time it just it does nothing but harm to chimino because it's like it doesn't have the perspective of of really seeing that this is this is a passionate disappointment that's being expressed here yeah. Not I mean, a, Bach wanted to make the movie. I mean, he had been aware of the script and knew oh, what he was getting into. Yeah, so that's it's, why it's like it a Western so directed by David Lean, you yeah. know? And he didn't... I think that there was a level on which... See, the when you read the... I've read the book a couple of times, you know, and I, I know that, like, the, a, a lot of the a lot of the battles... See, Bach chose his battles badly with Chimino on a, a level because he kept fighting him on casting. Yeah. And it's like, don't fight him on casting. Fight him on story. Get him, help him, help him tell the story well. You know, like trying to cast Jane Fonda in the role that was played by Isabel Huppert. No, not gonna, not gonna happen. You know, uh, you just don't let let Chimino choose his actors because he's so great with actors. He has such great actor sense. But, you know, the 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 thing to help him with is is help him get his story told. Make sure that 
you know, I mean, look at the script closely and just ask him if is there enough going on between, you know, the character that John Hurt plays and do we have enough scenes with him because the thread of his story gets lost under all the, in the mine shaft, you know. Yeah. Now, maybe that footage exists and Chimino was choosing it, you know. Uh, you know, there's, I feel that what, you know, when I look at the thing from uh, as objectively as I can, I think that they were wrong to shoot for a release date in November of 1980 given the, the amount of footage they had to go through. it I would have urged Bach... Do you think that was because of the stresses of the company and they thought, we need to get a new movie to out de- there? Well, or? to a degree. I think what happens is that um, you make a deal to get the movie out by such and such a date. Yeah. And I think that that date was, you know, was the wrong gesture. It's like, okay, we've got a guy on our hands who's going to make a big movie. What are we? Why don't we push the date back so that we're on board because there was a whole the whole issue of final cut in that book is you know Chimino can maintain final cut if he delivers the film by such and such a date you know and it's sort of like and what did it say it was also a clause that Chimino will not be held responsible for overage over budget to reach this date of November 1980 yeah. now okay that was that was uh Michael basically being a tough negotiator, saying, all right, you want me to hit that date? Then you can't hold me responsible for the amount of budget that it's going to take to get you to that date. Mm. Now, that's just being honest. when you come to, he, he knows what it's going to take to hit that date. Yeah. But what, what I feel Stephen Bach failed to do was to recognize, okay, this is nitroglycerin we're dealing with here. Why not, why not push the date back to the opening at Cannes, the Cannes Film Festival of May 1981? If that's your opening... Then, you know, you've got four months more to process that footage, you know, just to, to, for Chimino to, to tell the story well, yeah. to tell the story in its optimal form. Because I think the other thing that emerges is when everything collapsed on the opening night, uh, you know, Chimino immediately offered to do a recut. That's because he himself, I think, was unsettled about what he turned in. He, he absolutely believes in the film. Yeah. But he he knows that oh I can you know he he knows that he could fine tune the symphony a number of ways to now, make it better. The version that's out now on Criterion is that that's, a newer cut in a way. No, Chimino Chimino thought of making some cuts in that and he decided against. He Gosh. the only cut that he made he, he he actually tweaked he tweaks the last scene just a little bit. Uh, just he reordered the, the 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 frames and that's that's a controversy for for lovers of the original film but it's interesting but. Otherwise, he left it untouched, except he removed the intermission, and that's a <laughs> that's the test of true love because you you know you, 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 people just need a pee break. But you know, in the theater, I noticed that because people it almost seemed like people were walking out on the film. They weren't. They they were running out and then they were running back in. So so there was that test. But otherwise, the the film on Criterion is its optimal version in the sense that he also color corrected it. He took the sepia. Uh, tone out of it I, and he sort of revised that decision and oh, it just pops off the screen beautifully now um, but I think what happened is that you know really uh, Final Cut as a book is a, is, a, is a tragic tale because you see that you've got um, irreconcil- a set of irreconcilable differences are set up at the beginning and it's not Chimino's fault and it's not Stephen Bach's fault it, it is Stephen Bach's responsibility in a sense to to be the executive who can see far enough ahead yeah. that he's got to... If you love this director, 
if you love the guy who did Deer Hunter, you got to figure out how to protect his ass at the other end, you know, and, 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 and say to yourself realistically, what, what can we bring this in for? That way, that way you're also signing a responsible contract. You're not allowing him to go over budget. You're saying, no, why don't we release it in May of 1981 and, and leave that other codicil out of the thing and, and yeah. just work out a responsible budget together, you know, day by day. You know, because Chimino's a pro, he can work to that, but he was basically knowing that the limits that they were setting for him, he was going to, he was going to use that to the advantage of the film. Yeah. No, it's a beautiful film. It's, uh, oh. I saw it recently. Yeah. Looks yeah. amazing on the Criterion restoration. Yes. So. Yes. And he was doing something very unusual with character, which is that he's, he's inviting you to identify with whoever you want to identify with in the film. He's not, yeah. you know, the, as a protagonist, you know, the Christo Chris Christopherson character is is very um, recessive. He's very much a man in shadow. He's very much the narrator of the film rather than the protagonist, mm -hmm. you know? And that is so fascinating, as a, just as an approach, that you have to... It, it, it really was a bold and challenging film. And... I know that, you know, that there was probably, from Chimino's own heart and soul, there's probably a, a more optimal version was within reach had there been just a bit more time to flesh it out and connect with more people because cause Chimino's ability to connect with an audience is a very mysterious piece of alchemy. You know, he, he, he really connects with people by showing people in action uh, without narration and without, without manipulating... Um, without manipulating through uh, cuts and cameras. And let me be specific about what I mean. The deer hunter has no cross dissolves in it. There's no dissolves, yeah. there's no, you know, like for example, you, you go straight from the, the solitary Chopin piece with the guys in the bar listening quietly to right bang, to helicopter. Yeah. No, no, and, and it's a beautiful I've always shot. wondered about that decision to not have it. It's such like a, a standard, conventional, you would say, dissolve to exactly. Vietnam. Exactly. You know, I wonder why he didn't... Uh... And there are no dissolves in Heaven's Gate either. He will instead cut to clouds moving across the plane. It will, you will suddenly cut to... And that'll to, be his bridge to get to the next... Yeah, exactly. Right? It'll be... It'll, you'll suddenly be... You, you cut to smoke, and, and, and suddenly you discover what you're looking at. And, and in, in Deer Hunter, there's an amazingly beautiful shot of, of Robert De Niro in his beret, fully dressed in semi-dark. And then you realize, no, he looks out, you're behind a sign. You think you've come from the hotel to him in the semi-dark, and you realize, no, he's hiding behind a billboard looking at the funeral party in broad daylight below. It's just a... You know, you thought you were in the darkness, and you're actually back in yeah. daylight. And it's like no dissolves, and it's like a, a beautifully judged decision to cut. And you know, Chimino's whole aesthetic is so so alive in that particular way that uh, you know, it's just as with Wells, it, it's just tragic that you know it doesn't get understood in time or, or yeah. protected. Or I wish there was more of a, a filmography in a sense. I wish yeah. you know we had seen more films from Michael. There yes, are, you know, great ones out there, but. Yeah, yeah, it's, you know, I mean, the the uh, the later films are, you know, like The Sicilian, I saw that not long ago, that's still a great film, you know, it's a, it, it you can, I worried, you know, okay, did I, did I overrate it, because I, I really liked it when I first saw it, and I thought, well, people argue with Christopher Lambert in the lead, and I, I can understand that, because his voice is sort of high-pitched, and it doesn't, 
promote the authority that, that you need to be that you know that leader of men you know and I, I think okay because everybody else in the movie has has a marvelous voice and I know from knowing Chimino I know that he really worked hard with Lambert to, to lower his voice by a couple of octaves but yeah. you know there are levels an actor can't give you you know so but watching the film again uh, a couple of years ago uh, just watched it through one night and it, you know no it's beautiful it's you know to the extent that Giuliano, um, you know, that Lambert is off as Giuliano, and to his, it's, it's like, no, the part has come to fit him now, because it's like the uncertainty actually informs the character and the story that's being told, you yeah. know? So, so, you know, I think that it's a tragedy. In Chimino's case, I think partly because, unlike Wells, he could not go on working on his own. I mean, he does, he does go working on his own as a writer, but but you know landing the deal that gets the gets the next one made you know because there are some there's some magnificent pictures that that uh, he wanted to make and couldn't you know uh, and uh, I know the Fountainhead was one that's uh, yeah talks about a lot with Clint Eastwood uh, yeah that was actually and that was a, a fairly early on and it's interesting about that because he thought this is I I once I remember you know when i first met him i met him in late august of 1985 and final cut had just come out so we're just getting to know each other I said so have you read that book final cut he said no i haven't read it. and just okay done dismissed done don't don't go there and uh you know later on as i got to know him better i said so i mean final cut that book disturb you said i haven't read it and I thought, okay, are you telling me the truth or you know because I thought maybe he's just protecting himself you yeah. know why not you know uh, trust that to a friend and don't uh, don't pester him much and uh, and so at one point we're after we were walking out having dinner you know um, you know we're just walking the street I said well you know it's like you wanted to do the fountainhead da 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 and he said how the fuck did you know I wanted to do the fountainhead I said well I, I, I guess I read it in Final Cut and I mean he practically floated off the sidewalk as he turned to me I mean it was like and I mean the look of astonishment on his face he said that the Fountainhead is that's in Final Cut. I thought Final Cut's a book about Heaven's Gate. I said, well, you know, he he deals with the fact that you were a wrestler at Madison, Wisconsin, and all the and you edited the yearbook and then you did and it's like it was like I was you can throwing, believe all this personal information. It, it's like I was like I was throwing buckets of cold water on him. He's like and, and he's like laughing while I'm doing it because he's like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? That's in there too. So geez, I might actually have to. Re you mean I'm going to actually have to read that book now? Because I, I, you're telling me that's in there. So, so that that was funny. That that brought it to. It, he really didn't want to look at. Uh, you know. Just, yeah. Uh, Is there any reason why he's been so sort of secretive or under the radar over the years? Like I remember for years he didn't want to be interviewed, didn't want to be photographed. Yeah, was, I think uh, that. I think that he's. You know, it's a, it's a mystery of a certain creative personality. I, yeah. from the first moment I met him, I realized I was in the presence of a guy because I'd read a lot about J.D. Salinger, and I knew that you know it's like a, a friend of Salinger's named Peter DeVries said, yeah, if you're if you're a friend of Jerry's, it's like you're in the mob. You don't talk about it, you know. <laughs> and and I realized, yeah, I mean, I'm getting stuff from Chimino that I can't talk about with my fellow film critics. It just. Uh, because yeah. he's given me the gold, but it's like he's trusting me not to go blabbing, you know. And it's even little bits of gold about how things are produced, you know. And because uh, with Chimino, you don't, I, I realized too from uh, meeting him and talking with him, Jerry Harvey, you know, Michael won't talk about big meaning in his movies, you, you know, you know, what, 
what were your intentions so much or how did you da, da, yeah. the philosophy da, da, and all this sort of stuff he it's all about if you ask him that shot in heaven's gate you know like when you're you when you're up doing the you know the the railroad and he said oh yeah well and he'll go into he'll give you an anecdote about how they got that particular freight car you know and what we went through to get that and and, it, and it'll tell you a story because he's a storyteller he's yeah. not a, he's not an abstract philosopher and yeah, and the few interviews that he's that he has out there i mean he's an incredible storyteller he's so detailed he's so charismatic yeah absolutely yeah. and he's also he'll he'll say you know what did he say at one point to me he said heaven's gate no, people don't seem to realize that it all builds to that that moment on the boat. They said, "What's he doing on the boat in 1905?" You know, I mean, the whole movie is a backward glance taken in regret, and you don't know that till the last moment. You know, <laughs> and I thought, oh, you know, and I thought, what a great definition of your own film. But that's exactly what he was shooting for, and he made the movie he was he yeah. set out to make. Uh, and so he is. I mean, you know, he he's oh, when the few times you can get him to look at Heaven's Gate, he's he comes back beaming with pride. He made exactly the movie he had in his head. You know, so, so there's, and you know, I mean, when the the first interview he gave about Heaven's Gate was like many years after, it was like 1990, I think, and he gave it. It was when Desperate Hours was coming out. He he uh, agreed to do an interview with Gene Shalit, I guess, on the Today Show, and so Gene Shalit said, you know, I have to ask you about about Heaven's Gate, and he said, so well, I'm happy to answer you. He said, uh, you know, he said, well, what about it? He said, well, my, you know, people criticize it. He said, but, you know, my answer is what, what uh, you know, uh, he said, what Kennedy said about the Bay of Pigs. You know, I take full responsibility. I take full responsibility for Heaven's Gate. I don't hesitate. I'm proud of that movie. Yeah. And boom, done. It's like end, end of discussion. <laughs> Robert Frost uh, wrote a poem called The Drumlin' Woodchuck, which is about, you know, the woodchuck who's got a, an entrance at both ends of its burrow and how it's protective fundamentally of the privacy of its life because that privacy is out of is the thing out of which the great creation comes and so really if you know i'm tunneling through a lot of vapors about chimino but really the reason we don't know more about him is because he has needed the privacy that he's cultivated around himself to create the the things he needs you to think create. we'll ever see another film from him i hope we do i he has the capacity to do it you know um I think you know it, it's up to you know it's up to so many things. It's a matter of getting financing in a row. I mean, he has on the one hand, I know there's a um, a small film that he's written called Cream Rises, which he he could make for a very low budget, and then and and that's been publicized that he's going to do that. He worked for a number of years on an adaptation of Man's Fate by Andre Malraux, which I read, and is such an amazing script that he's written for it. That. I can, you know, I can assure you, it's a really wonderful script and would be a, a dynamite project because it would be a movie to set beside Deer Hunter and Heaven's Gate as, you know, majesty and epic. You know, um, he wrote a, a film called Conquering Horse, which is set among the Lakota Sioux. You know, and he was he wanted to do that right after Heaven's Gate in the early '80s. You know, you, you, it's like with Wells. You know, you see these things that they wanted to do and didn't get done in yeah. time. It's like, <laughs> you know, and to bring it back to Wells, the uh, Other Side of the Wind has been unfortunately superseded by, say, Natural Born Killers. You know, what Wells was trying to do in 1970, yeah. 25 years later, you know. Well, allegedly, they say Oliver Stone had actually seen some cut of The Other Side of the Wind and that kind of inspired him. I, I read that somewhere. I don't know if that's true. But. I don't. Well, it depends on when he yeah. saw it. I mean, because <laughs> I, I understood that he'd seen it. They showed it, they showed him footage 
at after Natural Born Killers, and he, you know, and he complimented Oya Kadar, but I, I have to re-reference Karp's book, but yeah. but it would make sense if he did, you know. I think that, though, to give Oliver Stone his due credit, um, I think what Wells was filming was the thing that was already there, kind of, in the culture that uh, you could see in the jazzier commercials that Wells under, because Wells loved commercials. He felt that they were, you know, sometimes you were seeing, you know, dazzling stuff because in the space of a minute, a lot gets communicated. And so that gave Wells confidence. And there was also um, some wonderful um, montage things that would show for play on TV where classical gas with every work of art and like 300 years of, 3,000 years of art in three minutes, you know. And so, there was a whole sense of speeded up psychedelia that that Wells knew would translate well, you yeah. know, into the filmmaking techniques. So he he was right on top of what was going to become the next wave, and and basically I think out of his own particular orientation, Oliver Stone was able to catch the crest of that wave in 1993. What I hope I hope people take away from my book is just how engaged with the world Orson Welles was, how completely engaged he was with the world from beginning to end. Right up to his dying day, he was engaged with the world as an independent reality, and he, his vision was to try and be true to his imagination while reacting to the world. So his political activities are very profound and very real. You get a strong sense of that in my book. And then the rest of it is simply that he was, uh, he was ambitiously productive. He never gave up. He was, I mean, he died at his typewriter. You know, yeah. uh, this is people talk about his failure after Citizen Kane. This is not a life of failure, uh, a life of eclipse from time to time, but not failure.